Welcome to the Staying Ageless Podcast, a show that will equip you with the major keys to achieve extraordinary longevity. This is your girl, Associate E, also known as Raw Girl. I'm a certified nutrition specialist and behavioral coach, and today we are going to do a season three recap. I can't believe we made it this far, y'all. Thank you so much for tuning into the show, for subscribing, for telling your friends. Thank you so much to the listeners from all over the world who are listening. Shout out to listeners in Uganda, Mozambique, South Africa, the UK, France, Germany, Canada, Ireland, the Netherlands, Poland, and of course the USA. We appreciate you so much, and we are going to be back on March 27th of 2021 with more amazing content for season four. So stay tuned. And remember, we are now posting episodes in audio and video format. So if you want a visual experience, go on over to YouTube and subscribe to my page, The Raw Girl. For now, we're going to put together clips in this episode from some of the amazing conversations I had over this past season. We talked about many aspects of gut health. We talked about Ayurveda, genetic testing, how to build strength on a plant-based diet. We chatted a bit about vaccines, metaphysical colonics, slave food, and how racism affects longevity, how to heal PCOS, and self-care. What I want you to do is listen to this recap, and just in case you missed any of these amazing conversations, please go on back and catch up on what you missed, and also check out the video interviews for our latest episodes on my YouTube channel, The Raw Girl. Don't forget that February 28th, my eight-week program, Staying Ageless 30 Plus, is back. (laughs) We only do this twice a year, and there's only one more week to join in on this edition. If you didn't know, Stay Ageless is my signature program in which women have reversed hypertension, diabetes, lost up to 30 pounds, balanced hormonally, resolved their gut issues, discontinued medication, and the list goes on and on. This course is for you if you are interested in staying fly so you're 99 or close to it. (laughs) Um, If you need to figure out exactly what diet and exercise is best for you, And also, if you want to create lasting healthy habits, we are taking calls for anyone who is interested in Ageless this week. So click the link in the show notes or go to my website, The Raw Girl, and sign up for a time to chat with me or a member of my team to see if Ageless is the right fit for you. We also have a free training of six major keys to determining your ideal diet. And I highly recommend you check it out. We'll link that in the show notes. Um, That is a free training. So feel free to sign up. All right, sis, to listen to past episodes, visit stayingagelessshow.com. While we're on break, also feel to send in your questions. You can message me via my website, therawgirl.com, or check out my program site, stayingagelessuniversity.com, or you can DM me via my profile on Instagram, at therawgirl. To those of you who are in the Clubhouse app, come through and follow your girl, at The Raw Girl. This Sunday, February 21st at 9 p.m. Eastern, I am going live in the Clubhouse app with a panel of doctor friends to discuss how the history of slavery impacts African-American food choices today and to offer solutions for health disparities and reversing chronic 
health conditions. It's going to be an amazing conversation. So I really hope you don't miss it. We got Dr. Milton Mills, Dr. Eric Walsh, Dr. Columbus Batiste, two of which have been on the podcast. So you can go back and also check out their episodes. But if you're on Clubhouse, follow me on the platform and tune in at The Raw Girl. All right, y'all. Until March, stay healthy, happy, and productive. Yes, as you at any age, but definitely sure when you get older and also uh, bone density uh, decreases as you get older too. So definitely having some weight training. You don't have to have, have to be an, an athlete, but you can do some, you know, some light weight barbells or dumbbells, you know, at, uh, for bone density co- with, with correct form, you know, that's important. And having the right supplementation through uh, your foods, having enough calcium, potassium um, in your in, the, in in your diet, you know, as you get as you get older, yes. Mm. Yeah, no, that's good stuff. I definitely, I think it's really awesome that one, you're doing it with whole foods because I think a lot of people think automatically they have to get a ton of supplements. Oh no! And so it's good to hear that you know, right. you know, there are people out there just doing it with plain old food. Right. And then um, the the stuff that you said about alignment, I f- I feel like really rings true. Like I've started to see a kinesiologist, and I find that he was able to show me where my spine was off or where my posture was off. And that has been a game changer because like literally my back and all these different things that were hurting are now not because I'm developing the muscles that I need to develop. So I definitely, I definitely recommend that to people like look into your posture, look into your alignment, figure out where what's off and, and fix it for sure. Yes. I mean, because I wasn't using certain muscles that I was, you know, that, that I'd never used before. And I was like, Oh, wow just taking a piece of protein from the surface of the virus or the bacteria and Mm. injecting that and your body would make antibodies to the protein that would prime it to deal with the disease later. So, but that's, that's all, those are all still traditional ideas about how vaccines are made. When COVID hit, they decided to take a new approach in part because they wanted something that they could scale up and produce massively and much more quickly. And the old ways of doing vaccines, that would not be the case. It would be a a bigger process. Mm -hmm. So that's when they came up with these mRNA vaccines. And the idea here, so messenger RNA is a piece of, of, it's like a copy of the genetic material Mm -hmm. that goes into the cell and it's like the blueprint for assembling a protein. And in this case, they've taken a piece of messenger RNA that codes for the spike protein, which everybody's been talking about on the surface of the COVID virus, okay, the, or the coronavirus, I should say. And the idea being that you train the body to make antibodies to that spike protein. So when it really encounters the real disease, it's primed and it can whip out those antibodies and you win the battle against the virus before it can make you sick. Mm. So what they've done now is they've taken this RNA, this messenger RNA and then they it, it gets injected into a person under their skin. And it's even a new kind of injection they're doing now. It's not what you're used to. It has to have a special needle. It can deliver a little bit of an electrical current with it oh my so, goodness. so that it gets the cells to actually take up that piece of messenger RNA because it normally won't penetrate a cell inside of it. 
once it takes up that messenger RNA, then that messenger RNA directs the cell's organelles to start producing these spike proteins, which hopefully then are made in an amount that gets out into the bloodstream, and then you start um, making antibodies to it. So that's how it's supposed to work. From what I'm seeing, when people do eventually get to me or any anybody in our uh, practices, they are looking for something different. They're like, this is clearly not working. You know, I've been on, I've tried six or seven different prescriptions. I don't feel like I'm being heard. This is mm. clearly not working. I don't want to be on this. Um, mm. you know, how can I get off? And, you know, I hear all the time and I get it. It's not easy. I've heard multiple times people say, well, my primary care doctor has me on Cymbalta, but they, and I feel fine, but I want to get off of it. And they don't want to because it's going to be too challenging. I'm like, well, okay, it is challenging sometimes, but that's no reason to stay on it for the rest of your life. Um, right. You know, so it's really interesting. Um, but that's where I would say some of the biggest differences in um, traditional psychiatry versus integrative. Okay. So where does something like amino acid therapy come into play? I, I kind of have a general understanding of it. I understand that you know, amino acids are building blocks for neurotransmitters, right? But break it down for people who are like, I don't even know how this would work and, and how, how do you use it? Perfect. So most of our amino acid therapies based on genetic testing. I can speak all day about genetic testing. That's where I got my first niche. What I found out, um, you know, through all of that is it is just an informative information. Genetics is not the end-all be-all. We can talk you know, forever about epigenetics and how really that is the game changer. That's what needs to be focused on. But finding some of that information via genetics can help us optimize those pathways or those genetic variances in, um, in a positive way, really way more effective than uh, prescription medication most often. I legit like love talking about the <laughs> gut because there's not any gold standard. There's no like solid consensus to say, yeah. like, you know, if you do this breath test, like H. pylori breath test, or if you do this stool test, this is definitive for diagnosing leaky gut. I mean, there's a lot of like misunderstanding around what leaky gut actually is. And people will say like, well, your gut is just naturally leaky and it's normally leaky. And it's like, that's, that's not really true though. You know, like our gut is highly specialized to allow mm-hmm. coming across to come across. Right. So it's mm-hmm. not, naturally leaky. It's a good mm-hmm. permeable organ. It's supposed to be permeable, but it's not supposed to be leaky. I guess in my mind, leaky is on the higher end of the spectrum of disorder, not normal. Right. Right. I guess it's relative to how you see the word leaky, but for me, leaky means there's an issue versus permeable. But um, I guess for leaky gut, I say is increased intestinal permeability. Yeah. And look at the intestinal um, track, the small intestine, large intestine, like you have three distinct layers. You have the mucus layer, which is thinner in the small intestine, thicker in the large intestine. You have the epithelial layer, the cellular layer, and then you have the lamina propria, which is beneath that. So you have these three distinct layers that make up the gut. You mm-hmm. have, you have, I think of leaky gut in those three stages. So I think, okay, mucus degradation. Um, I think of like degradation in the cell integrity. So that's where you have the tight junctions and the desmosomes and the adherence, all the things that bind the cells together. And then you have the lamina propria, which is right underneath it, which is where all those immune cells lie, basically waiting just in case something comes across that shouldn't to kind of arrest it. So, um, you know, when you think of leaky gut, you think of, okay, aberrations in the mucosal um, lining of the gut 
Is it thinner than it should be? What causes the mucosal lining to be thinner than it should be? You downregulate those mucin proteins and those mucin genes. You think about the epithelial cell layer and what triggers zonulin and um, the, mm-hmm. the, the tight junctions to be disrupted. We know that, you know, um, bacteria can trigger. We know that, for example, gluten can be a trigger. Gliating can mm-hmm. be a trigger in celiac and non-celiac patients. You know, so I don't think that a single probiotic is going to be a miracle. Mm-hmm. But I do think that they can really help. And the research demonstrates that they can really help. But I think we have kind of a long way to go mm-hmm. in terms of that. And, you know, for me, the magic is in the food. If I take a probiotic, I'm taking, you know, a half a teaspoon to a teaspoon of something once once or twice a day. Yeah. Right. I'm taking a really tiny amount that has really big effects, obviously. But every day I eat pounds of food. Yeah. And what we know is that those pounds of food really affect the way our immune system works and affect the way our brain function works, our energy works. And, you know, food is the biggest intake that we have every day. And it's our biggest exposure to like the outside world. And most Americans, which you see all the time in your practice, are eating highly processed, ultra-processed foods, yeah. which are inflammatory and they make us feel terrible mm-hmm. over time. We can get away with it when we're young, maybe. Right. You know, <laughs> I look back and I go, man, I had such bad menstrual cramps when I was young. And, right. you know, different kinds of things, but I just thought all that was normal. Yeah. No, that's a big one. I did too. And I find that um, a lot of the women that I work with they had very clear signs earlier on that something was off and now they have fibroids or now they have cysts or whatever it is. And so sometimes we ignore those early symptoms, mostly because we don't know, honestly, it's not even really our fault. Yeah. If we are kapha dominant or if you're dealing with extra kapha and we're feeling slowed down and dull in our body and mind, you want to keep Especially exercise between 6 and 10 in the morning, because that's a cover time. And then comes mm. back in the evening again, 6 to 10. That's why you want to eat dinner earlier than possible, because if you eat like by 7 or 8, you're well into cover time and your digestive fire falls down because of the increasing moisture in the body. Mm. So, okay. and so a good exercise time is in the morning or the evening. It's great mm-hmm. to take an evening walk also for kapha dominant, but six to 10 are those kapha times. And you might have noticed that, I so I don't know if that's happened with you, but with me, I can work, I can go, go, go. But come mm-hmm. kapha time, and maybe because I am kapha, I tend to not want to like think too much. Like I want to just hang out with my dog or listen to an <laughs> audio book or kind of, you know, crack some silly jokes with my son or my husband and just be goofy, mm-hmm. you know, like just be lighthearted or, or clean my drawer or, you know, or do some light things. I don't feel very sharp. Unlike when at pit the time, which is from, you know, 10 to two in the morning and then at night, I feel that, but at comfort time, I kind of feel dull. And I either say, that's okay, but keep moving. Don't just exactly, Mm. uh, yeah, keep moving. And then it's only after 10 that we are asked to fall asleep. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So this is great wisdom that we can find in the rhythmic behavior. And so many people who have kapha isosa, you know, they lose pounds. I have a story of 
somebody called Tracy Cunningham in my book, Ayurveda Lifestyle Wisdom. And Mm -hmm. she lost 40 pounds without me ever having to say anything to her except for these basic minimum changes. Okay, so basically from my particular belief system and how I work as a therapist, the body has manifested some type of congestion, which is blocking them. Let's take constipation. So the body has manifested that, but it didn't start in the physical body. Yes, somebody perhaps isn't drinking as as much water. Perhaps they're eating foods that's congesting them and inflaming them. All of that is contributing to the constipation, but it doesn't start there. It starts emotionally. It starts mentally with what they believe in, right? It starts spiritually with their level of trust or distrust, depending. So when people get to me, I'm able to access them through the physical body because of their dysfunction, but it's why I created the style of healing because we can't just address the physical if they're going to self-heal. They need to understand what belief systems they have that they're holding onto that may no longer serve them. Perhaps it did at another time in their life, but not anymore. And to really understand how and where they're holding their emotions. Because it's scary for people to feel that vulnerability. And so what do they do with their emotions? They have to do something with it. A lot of times they will keep it right in their bodies. And then their body starts to go to dysfunction to wake them up, to help them look at maybe whatever it is that they're not looking at. Nurse the liver and kidney, yin and yang energy. Make sure the liver liver chi is flowing smoothly. So a lot of women, you know, because the fertility journey can be so stressful for a lot of women, it often causes we, we say like liver chi stagnation, right? So the, in Chinese medicine, liver, the emotions and you know, anger, frustration, all these things can affect the liver channel. So when we tell a woman you have a lot of, there's a lot of liver stagnation, it means that there's also a lot of stress and just emotional element to, to, to the infertility. So we, through the acupuncture, through the herbal teas, we try to really balance the spleen, liver and kidney channels. And then, of course, your meditation, yoga, things that can help her reduce her stress. That's really important also, making sure she's getting enough sleep. So that's those are some of the things that we focus on with infertility patients. And then, um, of course, the egg quality, too. Like, egg quality can also be a big factor. So more and more women these days are getting pregnant in their mid to late 30s or even 40s. So it, we say that, you know, as you get into your late thirties and forties, the egg quality can be affected. So from a TCM point of view, to help improve the egg quality, we focus on kind of nourishing the liver kidney essence or kidney essence. So that, that, that has a lot to do with reproductive function and egg quality. Um, a lot of the herbs that we use that help to nourish the kidney, kidney essence or kidney yin and yang, um, kidney gene tonics, those are all kind of egg quality improving type of herbs. Super cool. You know, there's so many different things that you need to consider. And obviously, you, you would work together with your gynecologist or, or your fertility doctor to make sure that everything is, you know, the uterine is good, the fallopian tubes, the male aspect of the fertility also is very important, checking the husband or the partner. You know, Ayurveda makes it really easy. And we can break down the dosha into some building block qualities and one of the qualities of pitta dosha is heat mm-hmm. one is sharpness mm-hmm. our third one is oiliness 
So mm. let's stick with these three qualities for the sake of the podcast. And so anything that's hot, whether it's a hot cup of tea mm-hmm. uh, or, or spending time in the garden in the hot sun mm-hmm. or hot sauna, maybe an indulgence, one too many saunas. But if you already have pitta inside you, like will increase like. So you want to be a little careful because anything that is heating beyond a point, not not all the time, but beyond a point, you will, you know, the, the heat, the like increase like, and you will become very uncomfortable. Mm. Well, second one is oiliness. So there is a slight oiliness. So the skin is oily. Stools are oily. And um, all is well, it's fine, but like one too many oily foods or French fries or mm. one feels nauseous, that one needs to take a break, mm. not too much. And thirdly, the sharpness, it's really great. I mean, one has a sharp memory because of pitta, mm. sharp recollection, sharpness in, you know, it is said that pittas are very smart. And the smartest mm. people on our planet, that sharpness is very helpful, but sometimes that sharpness can be in the mind and mm-hmm. the mind kind of can't relax. Mm-hmm. And also the tongue can be a bit sharp. So the speech. So sometimes mm-hmm. people can feel lonely when they're kind of personable, but people misunderstand them. Yeah. You know, it's the small acts of, of self-care that make the biggest impact. So just like incorporating, you know, things into your daily routine that um, align with mindfulness. So doing things like uh, when you first wake up, um, praying, you know, doing your devotion, meditating, journaling, eating a healthy, nutritious breakfast, um, stretching in the mornings when you're at work, uh, taking time to pause and take breaks. Um, when, you know, having healthy work-life balance. So, you know, with me, you know, I have an office because I, I like to leave work at work and then at home, that's our place to kind of like unwind, relax and unplug. So, you know, you know, my husband and I, we try to keep our bedroom a no tech zone. So no phones, no laptops, because we don't want to be in there working. We want to relax. And, you know, um, you know, I even, you know, turn my phone off in the evenings and, you know, I have an old school alarm clock because I don't want my phone to be the first thing that I grab when I wake up in the morning. So it's things like that, that um, can have a positive effect on your mindset and on your focus. No, for sure. No, for sure. I think so. I think that's a great, um, that's a great one. Definitely just the little, little boundary setting is really important. I think for a lot of people who work for themselves, Um, I will say this too, from my experience, it's like, it becomes hard to turn stuff off. So I think the easiest, like for me, the easiest way to turn it off is to literally designate specific times where things are shut down. So in my case, I take a Sabbath every week. I'm really intense about it. Don't call me. Don't talk to me on a Sabbath. I'm going to be out in nature or I'm going to be doing something relaxing. And I find that if I don't take it, I hit burnout. No, it's just, it's like, it's like predictable burnout. It's like, okay, this is, you're going to now, your immunity is going to go down or something's going to happen. And that's the one thing that I always try to make my clients realize is that if you don't build in self-care, it's almost like God is like, well, um, since you don't want to build it in, I'm just going to, you're just going to get sick. 
And now you're going to have to deal with yourself and, and slow down. So sometimes people get sick or get illnesses or, or health conditions because it's actually requiring you to stop and look at your life and take a moment and appreciate stuff and realize that you don't need to be running a rat race. So it's like, don't get to the point where you got to be humble to the place where you got a health problem. I would love to see resiliency actualize as opposed to the remnants that are more, you know, that are celebrated. Mm. The resiliency of that population of the the fruits and the vegetables and the, and those things that they were able to create really. And, and to make that, I think that we should, we should recognize in theory, the fact that, listen, we can make something out of nothing that we can survive off of but not literal sense, because that literal sense was not meant for our good. It was meant as just, hey, here's just the fact. Here's these other the other aspects. So that's what my growing sentiment of slave food is, is that when we look back culturally, and you can speak to this more than I can with your travels, it's just more from my reading, that we look at the root vegetables and we look at the richness of the soil that pertains inside of Africa. And we see that not only in Africa, around the world, that hints the reason of blue zones, the most long, long-lived individuals around yeah. the world. Multiple societies are, are predominantly plant-based. And so they're eating food of the earth that's rich and you want to, you know, but it's not until we move in this Western culture that we begin to adopt these substances. But lastly, I'll say this is that what hmm. the slave food project is, why it's so complex for those of you out there who haven't watched it or seen it, is that it's not just a focus on food. It is looking at the intersection between stress, which everyone faces, the hmm. Of racial discrimination, mm. right? It could be it could be racial discrimination, it could be gender, it could be orientation discrimination that's there and its impact in the development of health disparities. But here's another unique component: nutritional stress. This relationship of how our food mm. we're, is related to our stress and our reaction, and that all leads in this crucible of conflict that leads to the birth of disease. Imagine that you have a beautiful breeze flowing through your awareness and that's fine because then water would make you creative mm-hmm. it would make you spontaneous it would make you out of the box you know it would mm-hmm. make you flexible and accommodating and friendly mm-hmm. and really you know swift mover and you would be you know it would become a gift for you but imagine mm. that wind becoming a storm Mm. Then things just start falling apart. Your joints would crack. Your thoughts would not stay glued together. They would be scattering of your inner, you know, anchoring. That's what's going to happen. So whenever I meet somebody who has Vata Dosha, I say, you know what? You're a gift. You're a poetry of movement. You Mm. have capacity to think, to imagine, to meditate. Some of our... Greatest yogis have been Vata Dosha dominant. Just, just, you just need to master that wind. Mm. That's the only dance. Don't let it master you. And that makes a world of difference. Rather than trying to be what you're not, can we just come into balance? That would help really tremendously. Okay. What kinds of conditions or health imbalances can be really common for Vatas? Typically, you know, if you look at the mind and restless mind, anxious mind, like you mentioned, um, too many thoughts, 
and a sense of like sometimes even heart palp- heart palpitations. Mm. And then if you look in the body, um, aches and pains, and the pains would not even be like fixed. They would shift around a lot. I don't know if you've noticed that with your clients. They just move mm. around a lot because everything is moving. Mm. 